Welcome to STEM Interviews, a science communication interview series powered by stemcognito.org, a not-for-profit platform showcasing the best in STEM research for free. STEM Interviews is hosted by ex-researcher turned professional science communicator Dr. Sarah Wettstadt. Each episode, Sarah chats to a scientist, technologist, engineer or mathematician about their research and why it's important for both scientists and non-scientists. She also asks about their science communication tactics, hobbies, career journeys and pretty much everything in between. So welcome everyone to our new episode of the STEM interviews. Today we have with us Sally Hurst from Macquarie University in Sydney, and she's a master's student in archaeology. And to introduce yourself, would you just talk about your project and what you're actually working on right now? Yeah, no worries. So thank you for having me. First off, it's been or going to be a pleasure. Um, yeah, so I am a master's student at Macquarie University in Sydney. My undergraduate was in um, Egyptian archaeology and paleontology, so the study of fossils and dinosaurs and things. And now my master's project is going to be an attempt to combine a few of those things. Um, everyone was kind of like, because I was doing this double degree, everyone was always like, you have to pick one or the other eventually. And I was absolutely like, mm, no, I love dinosaurs. I love archaeology. We're just, we're going to work something out. So my master's research program um, or project at the moment, it's still kind of in early stages, but the plan is to um, do a survey for the Australian community and ask people about what they would do if they found a fossil and what they would do if they found an archaeological artifact, if it's the same response, if it's different, um, and just kind of see what people's perceptions to our cultural and natural heritage um, is. And a second part of that um, is going to be providing sort of a series of science communication media pieces. So a blog, a poster, a video, kind of like an Instagram post, infographic. Nice. And to show people these different things um, and then get them to answer a few more questions in the survey. So was there one particular science communication medium which they preferred, which they engaged with more? Did they find one was more informative um, and that kind of thing? Because a lot of the time, like we know all these, you know, diverse things of science communication is good, but we don't have a lot of actual studies or data on how people engage with this. So that's kind of a secondary part of the thesis. And to create those science uh, communication pieces, it's going to be kind of stitching together what the legislation is in different states of Australia. Are there any legal requirements if you find a fossil or archaeological artifact? I certainly didn't know. And I did a degree in both of these things. And that was kind of the other thing. I'm like, I, I feel like I should know this and I don't. And so there's no way that the general public who are potentially the people finding this important stuff are going to know that either. So yeah, so hopefully for that part, I'll be consulting with um, a bunch of heritage, archaeologists, paleontologists, experts um, to kind of get that legislation and make sure I'm getting the right message across. So it's a very multifaceted project, yeah. but I'm really nice. excited to get started. Yeah, there's so much, th so many things coming together. So yeah. my, my burning question as always is, why is this research important? Why is it important that people know what to do with a fossil or an artifact? I mean, for me, 
it seems really obvious. I don't know, like I've always had kind of an innate natural curiosity that if you find something, like I grew up on a farm. So if you found something in the paddock, you'd always go, oh my God, what is this? Is it something cool? It's probably just a rock, but I want to know. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people share this curiosity and especially for things like our archaeological and our paleontological heritage, this could be important. It's a very finite resource that, you know, we may only have one of a kind of these specimens. So it is important to protect them. And if no one knows what the legislation is or who to contact if they found a fossil or an artifact or what to do, then it might just be thrown in a cupboard or destroyed or buried. And so, you know, ideally, someone at a museum or someone who knows their stuff would be shown and could be like, oh, we've got 10,000 of these brachiopod shells. You can, you can keep it, it in your... We don't need it. Exactly. <laughs> Put but it into it the collection. Some... Exactly. But if it is something super important that we've never seen before, then if people don't tell us, then how are we ever going to find these new discoveries? So it's kind of community engagement and getting the community who are finding this stuff involved with the scientific process. Okay, so what should someone do when they find a fossil? Just to be clear now, because we do want to tell people what they actually should do. Yeah, so the actual laws, if you do find something, it's going to depend where you are. So, for example, if you're in a national park, usually the rule is just leave it there. You know, you don't take anything out of a national park, but you can always take photos of it. If it's on your property, um, again, laws differ where you are, but you can always um, take photos. You can go and show it to someone generally in a museum. And even if that particular person on the desk doesn't know what it is, they'll probably know someone who does. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, I work at the Australian Museum and we have the ask an expert function. So a lot of people, if they find anything um, on their property or in their backyard or in a national park, they can take photos of it or they can bring it in and um, sort of tell, ask these experts and they will kind of say, okay, you've got a fossil, let's go and talk to the paleontology department or let's go talk to the archaeology department and they can identify what it is and if there's any other steps, do they want to study it? Do they like, we've got, we've got too many of these, you can keep it, okay. that kind of Usually museums are the good place to go for this kind of information. Nice, yeah, obviously. So have you ever found anything in your backyard? Because you said you grew up on a farm. Yeah, unfortunately where we are, not great for archaeology no. or um, paleontology. No, there's not really anything near where I grew up. Um, the way I got into paleontology was my mum. So she's the one who runs our farm, our little beef cattle farm. Mm -hmm. And she would used to go to the cattle sales on the weekend and she just needed to keep my sister and I occupied. So she bought a big bag of dinosaurs and she was like, go sit under a tree, play no with way. the dinosaurs <laughs> while I'm going to go pay attention to the cattle and stuff. And so that was kind of how my sister and I both really got into dinosaurs and stuff and then, yeah, kind of carried on years later. Okay. And is your sister also still into dinosaurs or is it just you? It's just me now. She's <laughs> gone very different directions. So um, she has gone into agribusiness, so very much economics, agricultural, mm -hmm. farming kind of business stuff with very different parts. I don't know what she does. She doesn't know a whole lot of what yeah. I do, but... She's also an incredible photographer. Story of um, most scientists' life, I guess. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, but she's also an amazing photographer. So some of the pictures you can oh, probably nice. see behind me, um, these are hers. So um, we try and do a lot of family trips together, um, her, my mum and I. So 
Um, this was, we went to South Africa a few years ago and she was kind of our resident photographer, which is pretty special. Nice. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so, but let's go back to the dinosaurs yeah. <laughs> because that's what we want to talk about. Um, so what, what do you find so fascinating about this, about the whole fossils and are you just interested in the in the animal of the dinosaur or what is it that fascinates you? Kind of the whole process. I mean, it was definitely dinosaurs that got me in, just the fact that once upon a time there were these just immense animals yes. wandering around and how they interacted with the environment and just you know when you've got something that massive how did it move how did it eat what did it eat all these kind of questions I find so interesting mm -hmm. um but also the entire process of paleontology for me it's very much like CSI like you know it's an investigation you're a bit of a detective mm -hmm. um I mean, and at the museum, we do a lot of talks on this. So, you know, we'll present kids with some facts about fossils or um, how we might, you know, we've got this skeleton, what can we tell about it? Or we've got some footprints, what clues can we get yeah. from this? And that's really how paleontology is. You've got such a small amount of little clues about this past animal or tree or life form um, or even climate and stuff. And so it's amazing that, you know, this is, 100 million years old and yet we can tell what it ate where it lived what the climate was how big yeah. it was how much it weighed all this stuff so there's just so many questions that need answering and I'm yeah okay. always very excited to try and answer them okay as fascinating as I always find it but in me the question is why do we need to know this why do we need to know how some extinct animals lived 100 million years ago why is that important yeah. right now I mean, this is the thing for me, I just love dinosaurs. I think they're incredible. Um, but at the same time, a lot of work that paleontologists do can actually feed back into problems that we're facing now. So a big, so a big topic um, that dinosaur paleontologists look at is extinctions. Mm -hmm. uh, was it the massive meteorite that caused something to go extinct? Was it changing climates, rising sea levels, all these things, which except for the meteorite, hopefully, all these things that we're still facing now. Yeah. They can kind of look at these um, species and or environments and kind of go, okay, this was sort of a trigger or this was a clue indicating that this was going to happen next. And if we can find these similar triggers or similar clues in our current environments, then that can give us a lot more information on what might come next, yeah. um, even how we deal with these problems in the future. Okay, so what is the general theory in the field? Why are dinosaurs extinct? I know there's different theories and models. So what, what's the general idea of scientists? So the one that I've definitely heard most is the meteorite did cause it. So okay. 65, 66 million years ago, this massive meteorite um, came from outer space and hit the earth. It was like 15 kilometers across. Wow. Um, yeah, caused a crater in the Gulf of Mexico. So we kind of know where the location is. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of what set off events around the world. So a lot of people think, oh, it was the volcanoes, it was the tsunamis, earthquakes, fires. It was probably all of those things kind of at the same time. Um, but it was mainly that meteorite impact which triggered okay. a lot of other things. It is kind of hard to date a lot of those events. So um, yeah. there was some massive um, volcanic eruptions in the Deccan Traps around India. And so a lot of people think that, okay, the meteorite triggered these eruptions, but actually that may have been 
700,000 to a million years apart. So it's kind of like at the same time, but also there's a lot of, there's extinctions are obviously big events. And so there's always a lot of debate about what actually happened. Yeah. Okay. So the meteorite came to earth and then what happened? Why, why did the dinosaurs go extinct? What's the idea? So from, so from the meteorite, there was shockwaves, there was a lot of dust, um, carbon going into the atmosphere, and there was so much debris from the earthquakes, potential volcanic eruptions, smoke, um, that it kind of, it blocked out the sun for wow. a year. And then, you know, photosynthesis basically stopped. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of the plants obviously can't survive without this uh, sun. And so they die. And so then the herbivores die and then the carnivores die. Gotcha. And a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the issue was that dinosaurs were really big, that they needed a lot of food to survive on. Oxygen. Whereas, yeah. And so a lot of the creatures, which were about 25 kilos or less, they were more or less the ones to survive. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. I never thought yeah. of that. That's so interesting. It's so cool. Yeah. So it's always kind of these cascading events that one thing triggers and then everything else follows. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of why are dinosaurs still so famous now and why are kids so interested in that? I mean, you, as you said yourself, there's like toys or I'm at my friend's place right now and there's like dinosaur toys all over this place. Um, why do you think that is? Why do we find these creatures so fascinating, even though we've never met them? Well, I think this is the thing. It's that while we do still kind of have the ancestors, not the ancestors, the descendants of dinosaurs, so birds are descended from dinosaurs, they don't really look a lot like what we imagine those massive dinosaurs to be. We have nothing like them on Earth of that magnitude, of that size, of that biology. And so that's the thing. There are so many interesting questions about these animals, which we want to know and we want to ask. And so because there is this never ending list of questions, kids and adults are always wanting to know the answers to these. So even if we find a new species, that's, you know, then it's renewed again. And if there's a new Jurassic World movie, it's renewed again. So Speaking a lot of these of which. <laughs> What about the T-Rex? Why do we like T-Rex so much? Why is that the most important one or the most famous one? Sorry. Absolutely. Um, so Jurassic Park definitely yeah. has a lot to for with the fame of T-Rex. And I adore those movies, but as accuracy goes, not amazing for like mm -hmm. science communication and getting, you know, dinosaurs into the public eye. They were fabulous, but for actual facts on dinosaur paleobiology, not amazing. Um, yeah, and so I T-Rex. I had the same issue with a recent Netflix series that is called Biohackers, and I just couldn't watch it because they were using um, machines in the lab. Where I'm like, yeah, this is not how it works. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. No, I definitely understand. And the worst thing with the Jurassic World movies at the moment, like I love the originals; they'll always be my favorite. But the new ones have introduced these hybrids and stuff, and so. In some of the museums where I work at, we'll get kids coming in like, oh, my favorite dinosaur is the Indominus Rex. I'm like, it doesn't exist. Not even a real dinosaur. Um, but then, yeah, so things like T-Rex, which was a real dinosaur, this is the thing. Like, you imagine that this is something only someone in a movie could make up, um, but the actual dinosaur was absolutely incredible. So 
originally a T-Rex was so famous because um, it was the first or one of the first really big meat-eating dinosaurs. And so when they found it, they named it the Tyrannosaurus Rex, which means the tyrant lizard king. So kind of like the lion is the king of the jungle, the T-Rex is the king of the dinosaurs. Um, It was, yeah, later found out they found a bunch more dinosaurs and he's about number eight or nine on the biggest carnivore list. So he's definitely not number one. Um, And again, this is something that Jurassic Park has kind of perpetuated, that he was the biggest and he was the meanest. And I think in one of the movies, he takes down a Spinosaurus, which is meant to be much bigger. Um, And then, you know, you get paleontologists going, okay, first off, he was 12 metres long, whereas Spinosaurus was 17 metres long, so much bigger. Mm -hmm. Spinosaurus ate a lot of fish rather than actual other dinosaurs. Um, and they also lived several million years apart on different continents. So like they never would have seen each other. Um, and I think one of the biggest fallacies is um, in Jurassic Park, one of the most famous things about T-Rex is that it can't see you unless you're moving around, which makes, it just makes no sense. I mean, sure is a plot point in the movie, but yeah, this is the thing. So T-Rex has actually had really good binocular vision. They're, you know, an apex predator. So they kind of need good depth perception um, mm-hmm. to catch their prey because otherwise they'd just be running into trees all the time. And it just, <laughs> it just made no sense. Um, and so things like that, which so many people come into museums go, oh, I saw it in this movie. It's absolutely correct. And we go like, I mean, some of it was okay. Like the general size of the dinosaur was not bad, but then the rest of it, like, eh, not really. But yeah, so T-Rex is very famous, mainly because of those movies. But unfortunately, that fame has definitely come with some misinformation. So how often do you have these conversations in the museum? Like telling (laughs) people, this is not correct. I'm sorry, guys. I know you love T-Rex, but... (laughs) I mean, we basically built one of our kind of presentation talks about this point. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we were, we were really lucky that um, the museum did some work with National Geographic. They did a documentary called T-Rex Autopsy mm-hmm. and they built this life-size model of a dead T-Rex and oh. fake blood and limbs and x-rays and everything. And it's gory and disgusting and kids will probably love it. Um, But once they'd finished with the project, they had nothing to do with this giant T-Rex. So they approached the museum and they were like, do do you want it? Um, So the museum was like, hmm, sure, why not? Um, So we built a presentation. (laughs) Exactly. We built this presentation about T-Rex autopsy, but at the same time, we'd kind of go through the eyes, we'd go through the tiny little arms and kind of break down like, okay, what do you know about T-Rex it's probably from Jurassic Park let's break it down into what we actually do know um yeah and it was always like people would always go away like oh I didn't know that that's so cool yeah that's um, good so, yeah, that's a great think, way of science communication actually right exactly and the fact like it's building on something they know yeah. um and if it's not necessarily right it's definitely something you can connect with yeah that's good that's yeah that's great so how did you get into like science communication and public outreach and or why did you start working in a museum? Yeah, so um, my first kind of science communication role was when I was in year 10. So I was probably about 16 years old um, in Australia. 
at school you do like a work experience you do a week's work experience you pick a company that you think oh it would be fun to work there let's go and see what it's actually like mm-hmm. so for mine I went to the National Dinosaur Museum in Canberra because mm-hmm. that's a thing mm-hmm. and at the end of my week's work experience they said you know if you're obviously really into this would you like would you like a job would you like to work here mm-hmm. um, so I worked there you know every second weekend or so wow. all throughout high school and then I had a gap year so I was working there pretty solidly all through that and my favorite part was giving tours around the museum and just kind of the my favorite thing well whatever science communication I do is that look on someone's face when they're just their face lights and go oh my gosh that's yeah. so cool yeah um and just, I just see yeah. the, the connected dots in their brains like yeah that is amazing yeah I love that feeling as well yeah Exactly. So I kind of got hooked on that and I wanted to do more. Um, and I then moved to Sydney um, and started doing sort of volunteering at the Australian Museum. And I had a subject at university, which was pretty pivotal, and it was called Engaging the Community in Science. And it was run by this amazing woman, Joanne Jamie, um, and her husband, Ian. And they had co-founded a company called the National Indigenous Science Education Program. We just call it NICEP. Um, So they created this foundation and the premise was they would go to events and they'd go to rural schools who didn't have science facilities or didn't have the knowledge or the equipment, that kind of thing. And so we would go there and we would teach the year 12 kids how to do experiments and then they would teach the year seven students so they teach the younger ones so we're teaching them to be leaders we were getting everyone excited about science um, and so we got to as students got to write programs for this foundation and it was just amazing so I spent a year doing this working with these guys and sort of from that I realized this is something I want to do as a career like I love research I love dinosaurs but it's this part of science that I really really mm-hmm. love and that I want to keep doing so that was kind of the pivot and then what else yeah so I got hired at the Australian Museum um, as kind of audience engagement host which is kind of science communicator Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and so for most of the jobs that I've gone for things like student ambassador at my university as well a lot of that is kind of centered around giving you know kids at the end of their schooling advice on what university to go to what degree they should pursue and very much for me it's a huge plug to science um, because you know for me it's the future and I just find it so much fun and I think again a lot of people connect like oh you know when I was young I wanted to be Indiana Jones or (laughs) wanted to be you know someone working at the park and I was like you can that's a possibility exactly so yeah, yeah exactly what tip would you give anyone or advice to get started in science communication it doesn't have to be paleontologist but anything really what is, what is your idea, your advice? I mean, for me, volunteering and doing those work experiences were definitely some of the best decisions. Um, even as a master's student, you know, doing this kind of stuff, like, you know, it's not something I would normally do. I just wanted to try it um, yeah. and that kind of thing. So, yeah, even if you're, you know, a high school student, if you have a local museum, if you know even stuff like it's probably hard with you know a lot of things being closed down now but there's so many online courses you can do so 
I'm doing one at the moment, which is about science communication. And a lot of our kind of mini assignments are peer review. So we'll upload, you know, just a three dot point. This is an outreach activity I want to do in the future. Mm -hmm. Here are some supporting information. And then you swap with someone else who is doing the course and you can kind of give each other feedback. Oh, nice. And that yeah, and any, that course is open to anyone. And so a lot of these things, doesn't matter how young you are, they kind of start at a beginner level. And that's an amazing way to get involved and just start networking with this community yeah. you want to be a part of. Nice. That's that's really cool, yeah. I didn't know that existed. And I'm, oh, yeah, I'm still surprised that people, like, do people still go into museums? What do you think? Is it getting more or less right now? I mean, obviously right now with the pandemic going on, it's tricky but in general are people still involved in, or like interested in going in museums I definitely think so I think it also it depends on the museum it depends you know uh, is their social media and science communication kind of platform really good are they enticing people mm -hmm. do they have programs which engage with people um, definitely from my experience with the Australian Museum we so that museum closed for about 18 months for renovations and then it opened just as we were coming out of lockdown and so we had no international visitors it was free entry and we had so many visitors so many people obviously part of it was like oh my gosh we're free out of lockdown we need something for the kids to do so yeah. they came to the museum but at the same time that was amazing it was a lot of these crowds which maybe couldn't afford to come to the museum previously now that it was free could come and engage and go oh my gosh I didn't realize this was here this is amazing and so I think from that we've got a lot more kind of repeat visitors who see the changing exhibitions and see you know my team we're kind of on the floor trying to engage with a lot of kids and adults and so they see that there is this amazing resource of people and exhibitions to come and visit and so nice. I think you know it depends on the museum but yeah, I'm obviously very biased in this but yes I definitely think museums are still a very engaging nice. point for the public. That's, that's so cool that's yeah that's so important but yeah to get people involved to get especially kids involved and like science is not just standing in the lab no there's so much more cool stuff Absolutely, going on. Yeah. yeah so but one question I have for myself because so you keep saying oh we have this Australian museum for dinosaurs and all of this I don't think we have this in Europe or like it's I feel like dinosaurs are not that big in Europe or like there's no big museums is there like hot spots for dinosaurs fossils or how come you have you're like so involved in this in down under I mean it's weird in Australia because uh, like so the Dinosaur Museum is very, very small and it's not actually anywhere near a fossil site. Um, it's a privately owned business. I don't really know why it's in Canberra of all places, but we have some amazing fossils and the gallery is like, it's quite small, but it's amazing. And if you go on a tour with one of the guides, they're usually very overqualified paleontologists who are doing a master's or a PhD at the same time. So, you know, need a fun job on the side. Um, but the Australian Museum as well, it's a larger natural history museum, which has a dinosaur gallery. I'm obviously just very into the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's probably similar with some museums in Europe. You probably have natural history museums with big gem collections um, yeah. and, you know, a dinosaur gallery, but it may not be the focus. Mm -hmm. But there are definitely hot spots of where you find dinosaur and other fossils. So a lot of the time of fossilization, you need rapid burial events so things like 
yeah so like a landslide a sandstorm floods um that kind of thing which you know if a dinosaur is crossing river or something it gets covered really quickly um even things like swamps and lakes which were quite still and so if a dinosaur died fell to the bottom and then gets covered with mud um you know relatively quickly or just you know it's very still and so those are the kind of (laughs) dinosaur but really good for us then we can find them um, but yeah, those are the kind of hot spots that you tend to find. So a lot of China actually had a lot of kind of marshes, which very low oxygen environments, which was really amazing for fossilization. So China's amazing and Mongolia as well, because this is where we get a lot of um, dinosaur fossils, which have the feathers preserved on some dinosaurs. And so it's those kind of hot spots where you get incredible fossils. Uh, we have a few of these kind of hot spots in Australia, but they're usually in the middle of outback Queensland. They're very hard to get to. It's pretty fragmentary material. Um, and so places like North America are much luckier. So Australia, I think, has about oh, around 28 dinosaur species, mm-hmm. whereas places like North America has several hundred dinosaur wow. species. That's partly in due they due they have a much larger population so there's more people to go find those fossils yeah. but also they just had better conditions for those fossils to become fossils. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. Wow. I did I did not know about that. That's so cool. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, this has been super interesting. Thank you so much Sally for joining us. Um yeah, no now at the end, we always have like a few random questions that don't yeah. have too much to do with your research or with science. Can I just ask oh, them? Fine. Yeah, of course. Okay, so the first one is, uh, what was your favorite subject at school? Oh, um, ancient history was definitely <laughs> one favorite. Um, I remember I desperately wanted to do earth and environmental science, but I came from a town which didn't have many people and my school didn't have many people. So we didn't actually have enough people to run that class. So I ended up doing like just a generic science class. Um, At that stage, I didn't know that dinosaurs was where I wanted to kind of go into. So I was like, oh, biology, I don't need that. Um, (laughs) I know. So when I got to university, I was like, oh my gosh, I should have been doing this so much earlier. But I was originally on a very different career path and then halfway through my gap year, I was like, I actually don't want to do that at all. What do I actually enjoy doing? Which was dinosaurs and ancient Egyptians. So I found somewhere where I could study those. Yeah, which kind of leads us to our second question. Uh, What are you truly passionate about? I mean, apart from those two, um, like the ocean for me has become sort of a massive passion for me. When I was on my gap year in 2016, I uh, became a scuba diver. Um, Yeah, so when I was going to the first Africa trip um, that I was talking about with my sister, we went over there and on one of the coasts, it was very well known for having amazing diving. And so I was like, oh, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to come back here. I may as well become a diver and do some dives. (laughs) Since then, it's been a few years and I've also started to free dive, which is just you know, holding your breath and seeing how long you go. And it's just been one of the best things I've ever done. So whenever I go overseas or even in Australia now, I'm like, okay, where, where is an ocean? What big animals can I go diving with? So um, I went to a few years ago. Sounds like me. Where's the ocean? Where's the beach? (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. 
thing. But it's just like, what's in the beach? What's in the water? So um, a few years ago, I got to go to Tonga and swim with humpback whales. Um, oh. Even last week, so I'm down at Jervis Bay um, in Australia at the moment, and we have the whale migration going up the coast at the moment. So last weekend, my sister and I, we went free diving and we got to see some um, humpback whales in the water again. So it was incredible. So anything, whales, sharks, dolphins, rays, I love it all. I want to swim with all of them. Oh, my God. Wow. That's so yeah. brave as well. Amazing. <laughs> They're nice. friendly sharks. It's fine. <laughs> okay. So that, yeah, that kind of also um, um, answers our next question. What do you do in your free time? So I guess it's, yeah, diving and looking for dinosaurs and <laughs> enjoying this. All of that. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, things like drawing as well and, yeah, just extra research on the side. I, I love being busy. I'm very bad at just sitting yeah. still. So Yeah, join the club. Exactly. So, you know, at the moment, yes, I'm doing my master's, but I'm also working at the Australian Museum. I've got my student ambassador job. I'm doing an online course. I'm trying to draw. I'm visiting my mom. I'm, yeah, mm -hmm. whatever I can. I'm trying to say yes to everything at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I know how that feels. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And when you have some time in your free time, do you also watch movies? And what is your favorite movie, including archaeology or dinosaurs? Oh, okay. Well, so overall, <laughs> I know. Overall, favorite movie has got to be Lord of the Rings. Um, huge Tolkien fan. Um, yeah. Otherwise, Indiana Jones is a classic. Again, it's the same thing with Jurassic Park. Like, I, I love the movies. I love the characters. But as for actual accuracy, yeah. no, not at all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's Harrison Ford and you've just got to love him. Um, so, yes, those are definitely my favourites. And then, yeah, anything kind of fantasy. So Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, all of those definite okay. favourites. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay, and our last question is, What is your favorite dinosaurs? Dinosaur. Well, I do love this question because it's yeah. messy. So oh. my favorite dinosaur is a dinosaur called the Draco Rex Hogwartsia. Hogwarts. Um, I heard Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. So it translates to the Dragon King of Hogwarts because the skull of this dinosaur, it looks like a dragon skull. It's very spiky. It looks amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately, it's come out in the literature in the last few years that people think this might be a juvenile of another dinosaur. So it kind of gets submerged into this other species, which doesn't have a cool name. It's the Pachycephalosaurus. So it's one of those dinosaurs which have like the domed heads and they headbutt each other. Um, so it may not exist as a species anymore. It may just be a growth stage of another species. But still, I don't think you can beat a name like Draco Rex Hogwartsia. So that's it's still my favorite. I'm holding it's out amazing. for it. I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> okay. Okay, Sally. That was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this amazing conversation. I learned so much, truly. I, I did not know half of what you told me. <laughs> well, hopefully it made sense. Yes, it did. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of STEM to Views. Tune in again to hear more research stories from the scientists themselves. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at STEMcognito and on Instagram, also at STEMcognito, where you can keep up to date with our latest guests, video uploads and science communication tips and also watch the video version of this interview. See you over there.